You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so I became a Christian at about 15 years old, and at that time, I got involved in a youth group, and my youth pastor was actually a guy named Ben Stewart. Now, some of you know Ben Stewart. Uh, Ben actually came and preached here about a year ago. Uh, Ben is a really gifted uh, preacher, speaker, author. He actually works with Louis Giglio at Passion City Church and all that now, but back then he was just working with scrappy little kids like myself, and that's that's what he did. And Ben... uh, through some strange providence of God, decided to start discipling me at 15. And so we'd meet once a week for coffee and just get into God's word together and get into theology together and and all of that. And I remember him telling me um, pretty early on, and we were talking about what it looks like to regularly meet with God, engage with him in his word, to have regular rhythms of quiet times with God, a devotional life. I remember him telling me around that time, something kind of strange, he looked at me, as we were talking about that, and he said, Jimmy, if, if you want to gain some perspective on your life, I want you to do this. I want you to start meeting with God at cemeteries, which is weird uh, to say to a 15-year-old. It's weirder for a 15-year-old to have to now say that to his mom. Mom, could you drop me off at the cemetery on the way home from school because my youth pastor wants me to meet with Jesus? That's weird. That's weird. But that's what it was. And uh, you know what? As strange as it was, I decided to take him up on that. And so you, there were times where you could catch me uh, throughout my 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old uh, self posted up in a graveyard somewhere, sitting by tombstones with my Bible open. It was probably very weird for people to see. But there I was, I was sitting there uh, just reading God's word. A lot of times I'd, I'd even uh, walk around um, looking for tombstones to sit by of kids that were my age. And as I sat next to these uh, grave sites, uh, you know what? Something really remarkable happened. Uh, ben was right. Some perspective started to bloom in me. I started to meet with God and realize as I was among this setting that, man, my life is short, man. Like really short. Like as a 16-year-old, I was coming to terms with the fact that like, I'm not going to live forever here. Like every moment matters for me. And, and my appreciation for every day that I had with God began to really bloom. And I, I began to grow in my love and appreciation for the moments that God's given me to make much of him on this earth. It was a really sweet thing that happened. And it, it's so interesting. The thing that on the surface looked like a place of death became for me a place of life. Well, now, why am I telling you that this morning? Well, this morning... We're about to be in a passage that's inviting us to meditate on something that for a lot of us is going to feel a whole lot like death, right? For for a lot of us, the topic that we're going to be involved in this morning just feels uncomfortable and we want to avoid it like most people avoid graveyards. But I think what we're going to find this morning is as we press into the text that it's going to produce in us life if we can really get a handle on what God's wanting to share in the text with us. Because this morning we're talking about something called the doctrine of God's wrath. Uh, This is a topic that is not getting a whole lot of uh, airtime in pulpits today, Uh, but I'm eager to get into it with you because 
uh, I think that it's vital for our health as Christians and vital for us to appreciate God uh, as Christians. So uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in the text of Nahum this morning to uh, help us get a sense of what this is, what this doctrine of the wrath of God is. So if you have your Bible, uh, get it out. and uh, we're going to be in Nahum. It's the book right after Micah, which still probably doesn't help anybody, but it's uh, toward the back. Uh, and uh, toward the back of your Old Testament, you'll find it. And we're going to be in Nahum chapter one. We're going to be looking at uh, just a handful of verses from this passage to, to give us our, our driving force as we work through the text. Nahum chapter one, and I'm just going to read verse one for us as we get started. And here's what it says. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkish. So that's the opening. We hear about a man named Nahum. He's the author of this book and he's writing a prophecy concerning the city of Nineveh. Now Nineveh, you've probably heard of before, right? You've probably heard of it in the context of the book of Jonah, right? That's where most of us are familiar with uh, the city of Nineveh. And now it might be helpful as we're working through the text this morning to think about Nahum in some ways like a sequel to the book of Jonah. So Jonah wrote about a hundred years prior to Nahum. And if you'll remember, Jonah was commissioned by God as one of his prophets to bring a bit of prophecy to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the uh, capital city of the great superpower, which is the nation of Assyria. And uh, Jonah was commissioned by God to bring them a prophecy. And the prophecy essentially said this, repent and trust in God or else God's gonna destroy you. That was the prophecy, right? And after a, uh, a little battle with a fish, Jonah decided, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and do that. He goes to Nineveh, he delivers the word of God to them. And then miraculously, as some of you remember, the whole nation repents and turns to God. Like not, not just the people in the city, but, but the leadership of the city, the king himself bows the knee to God and repents, turns from their sin, and trust in him. It's a really remarkable story that we get in the book of Jonah. So that's how the book of Jonah closes. That's how it ends. But between him and when Nahum writes, about a hundred years have transpired. And whatever repentance was sort of brewing in Nineveh at that time, in Jonah's day, in Nahum's day, it was just totally done, right? Totally done. We're a hundred years later now. Uh, I want to give you a sense of what the mood of the city of Nineveh was like in Nahum's day. Uh, It was a brutal place, man. It was a brutal place. Like, I'll just read you uh, one quote here that I have uh, from uh, one of the kings of the day. This was sort of like the regular rhythm of how they would treat people in their military conquests. This is a quote from a secular history book of one of the kings uh, around this time period. I flayed him, he says. The skin I spread upon the wall of the city. In military campaigns they waged, the Assyrian army would often skin their victims and put them on stakes outside of the city walls as a warning. Like this was how they handled warfare in Nineveh. They were brutal and violent and aggressive and, and gratuitous. And they weren't just those things. This was a deeply arrogant people, a boastful people, like even all the way up to their leadership. So Ashurbanipal is a name that you probably never heard before, but he was the king uh, in Nineveh 
at the time that uh, Nahum was writing. Here's what he wrote about himself uh, at that time. So this is a direct quote from the king during Nahum's prophecy. He says this, I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, the great gods magnified my name. They made my rule powerful. This guy just literally referred to himself as the king of the universe, okay? God complex happening like literally, right? This, this guy was convinced that he was God. This was the attitude of the day. There was a boastful, egotistical arrogance about the people of Nineveh. And it's into this context that Nahum is writing. And as we read this morning, we're gonna be looking at three different things. We're gonna be looking at the reality of God's wrath in light of this context. We're gonna be looking at the need for God's wrath and we're gonna be looking at the rescue from God's wrath. So that's the three buckets we're putting things in this morning. The reality of God's wrath, the need for God's wrath, and the rescue from God's wrath. So first, let's look at the reality of God's wrath. We're gonna be looking at verses two and three in Nahum 1 right now. Let me read it for you. It says this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Interesting side note, this is gonna be our Stonegate Student Ministries uh, camp t-shirt verse this year. So we're pretty excited about that. You can pick them out in the lobby. So that was not true. That is not true. What this passage teaches us and what we have to sort of come to grips with today is that God's wrath is a real thing. God's wrath is a reality. It's part of who he is. It's part of his nature. Nahum doesn't start, this is interesting to note, Nahum doesn't start his um, prophecy here by saying something specific to Nineveh. Did you notice that? Like he could have said, the Lord is avenging and wrathful toward you. But notice that's not what he says. What he says is a more categorical statement. He says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, period. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, period. You see how that's an identity statement. That's an identity statement. The God we worship is a God of wrath. And you know, I think it's, it's interesting uh, as we're thinking about wrath and its, and its role within scripture. We don't deal with this a lot uh, as, as nice, friendly churchgoers. We don't. But the reality is if you were to, to take a concordance and do a word study of, of God's wrath, his vengefulness, and his justice, those words would come up way more often in your Bible than would his compassion and kindness. Did you know that? Like if you're just talking about real estate in scripture, scripture is clearly giving more attention to this theme than a lot of other themes. So it's worth our attention. And yet so many of us spurn it, right? I mean, this is offensive and uncomfortable and it's weird. And it's like, how do you handle this? I, last month, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and, uh, you know, I was talking to him. He is no longer a Christian. And 
I spoke with him about why that was, what, what sort of led him away from the Lord. And you know, it was so interesting what his answer was when I was asking him about it. You know what his answer was? He said, essentially, Jimmy, all this started for me uh, when I started to read the Bible more closely. His reason for why he's no longer a Christian was the scriptures. He said, when, when, I, when I read the Bible, when I was spent time in the Old Testament, and I read stories of this God, I didn't recognize him. That didn't look like the God that I worship. And instead of letting the scriptures bend his theology, he let his theology bend the scriptures. To where now, my friend, has repudiated all of the Bible and is a pantheist Unitarian. But it started with him dealing with the texts of scripture and realizing that, wow, I, the God that I've been taught is not that God. And I, I just think that's interesting for us to know. Like when we really get into the word of God, we are confronted with the reality of a God who makes claims of himself. Like I'm vengeful, I'm wrathful, I'm jealous. And now you have to deal with the implications of that. That's one of the things we're doing this morning. We're, we're needing to deal with the implications of that. And I think for us to, to not wind up like my friend, I think we need to develop a more robust theology about what this means that God is a God of wrath. So here's what we'll do. We're gonna answer some questions about God's wrath this morning uh, to help bring some clarity to this doctrine. So as we're talking about the reality of God's wrath, let's, let's define some terms and, and those sorts of things. And we'll start by doing this. Uh, what is God's wrath? What is God's wrath? That's the, that's the first question we gotta answer, right? What is it? So here's gonna be our working definition for the morning. If you want to, you can write this down. It says this. God's wrath is his settled resolve to righteously judge all sin. I'll say that again. God's wrath is his settled resolve to righteously judge all sin. God's wrath is an interesting attribute, isn't it? Uh, God's wrath exists because sin exists. Where there is no sin, there's no need for wrath. Like in eternity past, when it was just the triune God and there was nothing created, Right? There was no need for wrath. What would you exact your wrath or vengeance upon? There was his holiness and his love and his righteousness. All of those things existed, but his wrath is unique in that it's a provoked attribute, isn't it? It doesn't really show up on the scene until an obstacle comes in its way, which is why you don't really collide with the wrath of God until you get to Genesis 3. When man falls, that's when, that's when wrath uh, is engaged in the world, right? When Adam and Eve spurned God and decided to be God themselves, that's when wrath is officially introduced. Remember, he passes the curses onto the man and the woman and the serpent and all that. That's when we first see it in the world. So that's what God's wrath is. It's his settled resolve to righteously judge all sin. But let's push it deeper because there's more to be said here. Let's, let's, let's go deeper by, by asking the question, well, where does it stem from? It's a provoked attribute, right? So where, where does his wrath stem from? And I think you'll find it stems from a, a couple places. One is his holiness. Like God has been eternally holy, righteous, pure, blameless, spotless, completely other than everything else. And you see, when, when holiness meets with things 
that are unholy, that don't conform to a righteous standard. Now you have a problem and God's wrath rises up. And in fact, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that the holiness of God exposes sin and the wrath of God opposes sin. The holiness of God exposes sin, right? The holiness of God is like a, a giant white sheet. And then when the dirt of our sin falls on it, it's vividly exposed, right? On the backdrop of the, of the white purity of that sheet. And God's wrath is what God does in response to that dirt. He opposes it. So, so holiness is one of the places that God's wrath springs up because of. But I think the other place is this, it's his love. Now that's weird, right? It's weird to say that God's wrath could be motivated by his love. But before you, you judge it, th think about this for a moment. Isn't it true that whatever it is that we love deeply, like that we really love from the heart, isn't it true that we also hate and oppose those things that oppose that? Like for instance, I love babies. So I hate abortion. I hate abortion because I love babies. Do you see that? Now, now the question becomes, well, what does God love? What does God love most? And what we see in scripture over and over, guys, is this. God loves his glory above all else. He has always loved his glory. He presently loves his glory. He will eternally love his glory. He made us to enjoy his glory forever. And when an obstacle to his glory comes up, well, then his wrath comes up to oppose it, right? God is love, that is true. But because God is love, God also by necessity has to be wrathful when things oppose the things he loves. Do you see that? So that's where it stems from. Who will face God's wrath? This is an important question this morning. To answer it, we're gonna have Paul help us. We're gonna be in Ephesians 2, one through three. <coughs> he says this. Listen for the key words here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Who will face God's wrath? The Bible's really clear on this. Mankind. Like people, like, like every person born is going to have to deal with this issue. Every human that has ever been born has been born loving sin. And every parent in the room is just amening me right now, right? It's just true. We are born with a propensity to gravitate toward the things that God hates, it's in our nature. It's why so much of our world is a mess. We are, as Paul puts it, did you hear it? By, by nature, children of wrath. In other parts of the New Testament, uh, it says that God's wrath abides on us, that it rests on us, that it dwells with us. When the New Testament talks about the day of judgment, it uses words like these, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Who will face God's wrath? It says it right here. Everyone who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Everyone who does not know God. Now just, gosh, please feel the weight of that for a moment. Apart from Jesus intervening, the reality from, for every human being on earth is to one day face the judgment and wrath of God. Apart from Jesus intervening, every single human life will have to deal with the wrath of God in its full force. That should just make us tremble, shouldn't it? I just want you to feel that this morning. This is the reality of the wrath and vengeance of God. So now what, what does that mean for us? What does the reality of his wrath mean for us? Well, I think it means a couple things. One of the things I think it means is that it is calling us to worship the true God, not one made in our image. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is this. Most of us are not treasuring this aspect of his character. Most of us have, have not really even spent much time dwelling on it at all. It sort of stays in that closet back there with all the other weird things we don't understand in the Bible. And what we love to look at is the love of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God. And those are beautiful things to treasure. But that's only one side of the diamond. There's another side. There's all sorts of sides to this diamond that scripture is giving us. And when we're only looking at one side of something and we're totally purposely rejecting the other sides, well, there's a word for that in scripture. The word is idolatry. It's you making a God in your own image to suit yourself. It's, it's you inventing a God that feels more comfortable to deal with. A God that you can get behind. A God that you can say, that's my friend. Jesus is my homeboy kind of God, right? It's that kind of God. But that's not the God. That's not the God of scripture. He's, he's more complex than that. Your, your savior needs to be more than just a savior to you. He needs to have more sides to him than just that because that's what scripture does. We are called to worship the true God, not just one made in our image. I think the other application is this. You and I, we have to stop playing God's PR agent to people. You know what I mean by that? Like, like when you share the gospel with people, do you notice how you and I tend to like, man, just throw the love card out. Like we lead with Jesus loves you. They're like, I know Jesus loves me. Of course Jesus loves me. That's what he does, right? That's all the world knows about Jesus anyways. They, they think Jesus loves me. You know, that's, that's what they know. And when, when all we give them is that sort of 2D version of our God, we're shortchanging him because you know what's gonna happen. We're gonna get them really excited about this God who is full of grace and mercy and love. And then they're gonna open up their Bible and they're gonna be like, what is this? I don't know this guy. I did, is this the wrong, what book is this? They're not gonna know what this is. We sold them a bill of goods. We tried to prop up God's image. God doesn't need that. He clearly is not worried about his image here, right? Like, he, like when I'm reading the Bible, I'm like, God, there's a better way for you to have said that, right? <laughs> like there's just, I mean, I could think of 10 ways right now. Like just here, take these notes and, you know, call me. <laughs> He's not interested. 
He's comfortable with who he is. We need to be comfortable with who he is. We need to present him for who he is. There's good reason that we do that. The full God, the true God is the only God that can save. Amen? The only God that can save is the actual God. And if we give them a fiction God, a fiction father, that's no father at all. That's no father. We gotta stop playing God's PR agent. Okay, that's the reality of God's wrath. But now I wanna talk about the need for God's wrath because I'd be sad if, if all that this morning was was just me and you getting smarter about uh, a doctrine, right? I don't just want you to go, oh, cool, now I know what God's wrath is. I think there's something to treasure in here. As weird as that might sound for us, there's, there's something to treasure. It, it wouldn't be in the Bible if God didn't want us to meditate on it, think on it, uh, it to provoke things in us, good things in us. And so I wanna, I wanna give um, three reasons why I think we need this doctrine. We need God's wrath for the following three reasons. We need it, number one, because it helps us endure in persecution. It helps us endure in persecution. So before we watch any movie at my house, my wife always has a question for me. Uh, and the answer to this question is going to determine whether I am watching this movie with my arm around my spouse or if I am watching this movie cold, sad, and all alone in a dark room. Uh, it depends. I, I don't know. It's how, however I answer this question. And the question is, every time, every time, does the good guy win? And does the bad guy die? That's all she cares about. She didn't care about the plot. She didn't care about the, who directed it. Does the bad guy get crushed? And does the, does, does the good guy get the victory? That's all I want to know, right? We watch a lot of Disney movies at my house. <laughs> she loves it. Uh, and, and you know, the truth is that resonates with all of us, doesn't it? Like we, we love to see justice exacted. Gladiator, Braveheart, right? We love it. We love when justice is rightly executed. We love to see the good guy prevail. We love to see the bad guy get crushed. It's, it's part of being made in God's image. And, and so now here becomes the problem. If, if your God is not a God who is wrathful, if your God is not a God who is wrathful, now you're forced to be wrathful instead. Now you're forced to take up arms in adversity. Now you're forced to execute vengeance when you're persecuted. Uh, this is not the, the mood of the Bible, though. This is not how the Bible tells us to live as Christians. Look at uh, Romans 12, 19 and 20, though. Listen to what he says. Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. When we are wronged, which we will be, when we are slighted and looked down upon and harmed for the sake of the gospel, which the Bible in 2 Timothy promises is coming for everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, when that day comes for us, we can still be a people who walk peacefully and joyfully with our God. Why? 
because we know that in the end, God settles every score. That perfect justice and equity will be dealt with finally in the most perfect terms imaginable by our God. So we don't have to keep a record of everything our spouse did wrong to us. We don't have to keep a record of all the ways our friends hurt us or backstabbed us. We don't constantly have to be jabbing our bosses for the things that they did or our employees. We don't have to live like that because we're freed up with the knowledge of, you know what? In the end, God's perfect justice and equity will prevail. And so I'm free, not just to let it go, but to move toward them with compassion. You see what the end of that text said? It said, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. No, because, because of the doctrine of God's wrath, we're now able to, to care for the people who were our enemies, feed them, clothe them, give them water when they're thirsty. It's a remarkable freedom the Christian has if we could be a people who embrace this aspect of God's character. <clears throat> that's, that's reason number one why we need God's wrath. Here's another one. We need God's wrath because it drives our evangelism. It drives and motivates our evangelism. Listen to the writer of Hebrews 10, 31. <laughs> Here's what he says. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, that is, that is just quite the sentence, isn't it? Like without Jesus, the last place you wanna be is by God. In your sin, the last place you're gonna to wanna to be found is in the presence of God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a God who is so holy and pure that the Bible calls him a consuming fire. And that's why Paul uses language like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, knowing the fear or terror of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's saying, I'm, I am driven to persuade others to come be reconciled to God precisely because I know my God is wrathful. Precisely because I know that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just consider <coughs> for a moment, everyone you will ever meet, every neighbor you live by, every family member, every friend, every stranger, every one of them, will one day stand before the great white throne of God's judgment. Every one of them. And in their hands on that day, they will either be holding their sin or they will be holding the righteousness of Christ. And by some amazing miracle, God has given you the news the only news in the universe that's potent enough to liberate them from that judgment and from that wrath. That should drive us to give them the hope of the gospel, should it not? It should be one of the drivers that pushes us to open our mouth when we're nervous or scared or uncomfortable or I don't really know this guy, I don't know. But we do know that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he has given us hope in Jesus and we have that hope and we give it. The wrath of God is a gift to us because it motivates our evangelism. You see that? 
Not just that, but finally, we need God's wrath because it sweetens our salvation. It sweetens our salvation. I just want to uh, give an analogy real quick. So, so you just put yourself in this, this space. You're in a zoo. You're not in a zoo right now. This is an imagination. <coughs> you're in a zoo. And you're walking around in the zoo. And maybe you're at that part of the zoo. There's, there's a petting part of it, right? You reach over the little fence. You put your hand down to pet some of the animals. Little, little bunny walks up to you. Little bun bun comes over. <laughs> sniffs your fingers. Gives you a little lick. Gotta love the bunny licks. Super sweet. Bunny licks, that's super weird, sorry. Bunny licks your finger. Uh, you have that little moment. And all of a sudden as that's happening, your ears perk up because you hear a sound behind you. And the sound that you hear is blood-curdling screams of women and children. And you turn around and you look and behind you, you see men and women and children running for their lives because a massive 400 pound lion has got out of his cage and he is running down the corridor right to you. And this dude is hungry and he's foaming and he's roaring and your heart stops and you're frozen and you don't know what to do. And now he's 100 feet and 70 feet and 50, 30. And now he's right in front of you and right before he opens up his jaws to grab your jugular, he stops and licks your face. My question is, whose lick do you appreciate more? <laughs> Thank you. <I'm> gonna... <laughs> Think about it. It was his, right? Because terror was on its way. And then you were met with compassion. For so many of us, we've come at this Christianity thing from the wrong door. We've come in only through the door of God's love and mercy and coffee cup verses. And, and that's okay, but your Christian experience is going to be quite dull if that's all you know of God. But if you enter into this Christian experience through the door of God's holiness, his majesty, his might, his awesome power and his righteousness, that he is perfect in every way and cannot bear sin, and then you find out that that God is also a compassionate God and has extended his hand to rescue you, though he didn't have to, do you see how all of a sudden the grace of God is sweeter, isn't it? It's sweeter to know that God than the bunny God. And I don't want us to shortchange our enjoyment of Jesus this morning by only thinking that he's the pleasant parts of our Bible and not the harder parts. The harder parts are a gift because they sweeten the pleasant parts. Our experience of God's grace is sweetened by the wrath of God. And so it's a gift for us. It's a gift. So we've talked about the reality of God's wrath. We've talked about the need for God's wrath. And now I want to end by talking about the rescue from God's wrath. You know, it's interesting. This 
prophecy of Nahum's, it wasn't bad news for everybody. It was bad news for Nineveh, for sure. Like Nineveh was about to be obliterated by God. But it was really, really good news for the people of Judah who were also reading this letter, right? Because for the people of Judah, this letter meant we're free. Like we were being afflicted and persecuted and beat down day after day. Our lives were at stake. And now we have news from our God that he's setting us free from this. Like we can rejoice. It's good news all throughout that chapter one. You probably saw it as we read it over here. All throughout chapter one is woven bits of hope for the people of Judah. Hey, I'm breaking off your chains, Judah. You're free now, right? Let's look at even the the final verse here. Verse 15 of Nahum 1 says this. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This little book is really a book of hope. For a lot of people, for the people of Judah, it was a book of hope and they were glad to hear it. And you know what? I wish that I could say that 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 was the happy ending to our Old Testament. That, That Judah is relieved from the pressures of Nineveh and Assyria and God makes peace with them. They make peace with God. Everything's great. We're holding hands. We're singing Kumbaya. And then the book closes. But of course, any of you who are familiar with your Bibles know that that's, that's not at all how how your Old Testament ends. No, your Old Testament ends with shortly after this, those same people that are rejoicing at this news, the people of Judah, are running back to their pretend gods. They're running away from the living God. They're spurning him once again. And the end of your Old Testament ends with them not being captive to Assyria, but to the Babylonians. And they're taken away in 586 BC. All of Judah taken by the Babylonians. And so you have the Northern Kingdom of Israel taken by the Assyrians in 722, 586, the Southern Kingdom of Judah taken by the Babylonians. And what you have at the end of your Old Testament is just a desolate people who are trying to rebuild the scraps of their once glorious society, but they can't quite get there. And it's a mess and it's sad and it's tragic. And that's the way your Old Testament ends. But that is not the way your Bible ends. Because 600 years after Nahum showed up to give that good news to the people of Judah, another man came bringing good news. And this man didn't just have good news for the people. He was the good news for his people. Jesus Christ, God himself, came and condescended and not just to come and tell us how we could flee from the wrath that was to come. He came and crawled up on a Roman cross and absorbed the full measure of the wrath of God for sinners like you and me, took it on himself, bled out and died a traitor and a sinner's death on the cross. For us, he absorbed the wrath that we should have took. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Consider the words of Romans 5 as Paul says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us since then. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God is in the business of turning his enemies into his friends. That's what he's doing now. See, our God is a God of wrath, but he's much more complex than even that. He is a God who not only has wrath for sin, but he has a deep love for people. And he wrapped on human flesh 2,000 years ago and he pursued us relentlessly to the point of death, even death on a cross. What God of any world religion could do? Our God does that. He comes and he says, you're so bad and my wrath is so great and your sin is so vast. There's nothing you could do to right your wrongs, but I can. I'll take everything that's coming to you and I'll give you everything that I have with the Father now. And he does that for everyone who will put their faith in him to save them. You cannot bear the wrath of God on your own but you will unless you run to the shelter of Jesus. Jesus is offering you to be saved from God by God this morning. Run to him. If this is your first time to really hear this and get this, and you're going, I, I know I have sin and I, and I see that God's wrath is coming and I, I, I didn't know what to do, but now I do. I'm telling you, run to him, trust him. This is the morning to do this. In the day of Nahum's letter, it was too late for Assyria. If you're hearing me right now, though, it's not. What a mercy this morning. It's not too late to come and trust the wrath absorber, Christ Jesus. Come to him, trust him. I'd invite you to go to the prayer table as we continue to worship here in a minute. Go to the prayer table. We have pastors over there who would love to pray with you. If you have any prayer needs at all in this time, if you're convicted of sin and you need to repent to someone, head over to the prayer table. If you need to deal with something, please do that. But deal with God this morning. And as we're dealing with God, we want to do it in one of the best ways that God's given us to remember him, and that's through communion. So we have a couple stations up here on the right and left and then in the back at the tables. If you're a believer in this room, if you've trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, take some time, pray to him, settle your heart before him, ask him to search you and know you, and then come up at your leisure and, and take and eat the broken body and drink the blood that was spilled out for you. And remember that Jesus is the way that God is removing his wrath from us forever so that we can truly say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we love you. And we're thankful 
for your complexity because it sweetens our enjoyment of you. It's good to know who you are. It's good to know all about you. And God, forgive us for running from parts of you that we don't like. We want to embrace who you are. Would you help us to get there? Would you help us to to believe this? And most importantly, God, we want to be a people who cast ourselves on the mercy of our God. We just feel a deep sense of gratitude this morning that we have a Savior, that we don't have to face the wrath to come if we run to Him. What a mercy. Like what an incalculable mercy that is. I pray that this morning our experience of Jesus and worship would be sweetened. I pray that you would help us to enjoy the good news because we're so familiar, not just with the good news, but with the bad too. God, would you give us eyes to see these things? We're desperate for you. We need you to work these truths in our heart. Please do that. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.